You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and into ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our Byzantine lectionary reflection here for the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the first Sunday of Lent, in which the Church invites us to meditate upon the power of faith. There is, and we'll find through our Lenten journey together, that the Sundays of Lent, for the most part, have two layers, or, well, a historical layer and a catechetical layer, if we can make that distinction. And so while we commemorate the restoration of the holy icons in the Church this Sunday, there's also the same more foundational catechetical layer that we need to mine a little bit here um, regarding the power of faith in the life of the catechumen in preparation for holy baptism. I want to begin with sharing with you a little quotation here from Father Alexander Schmemann. I mentioned this book last week, his book, Great Lent, Journey to Pascha. I do recommend this book to all of our participants. I use it regularly every Lent because it, it's, it's a concise analysis of the, uh, the themes presented to us during the season of Lent. He says this about this kind of catechetical foundation for the Sunday of Orthodoxy. He says, as this first and essential theme of Lenten Sundays, it is also primarily revealed in the scriptural lessons. To understand their sequence, we must once more remember the original connection between Lent and baptism, Lent's meaning, Lent's meaning as preparation for baptism. These lessons are therefore an integral part of the early Christian catechesis. They explain and summarize the preparation of the catechumen for the paschal mystery of baptism. Baptism is the entrance into the new life inaugurated by Christ. To the catechumen, this new life is as yet only announced and promised, and he accepts it by faith. He is like the men of the Old Testament who lived by their faith in a promise whose fulfillment they did not see. This is the theme of the first Sunday of Lent. After having mentioned the righteous men of the Old Testament, the epistle, which we will read from Hebrews, concludes, And these all, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has foreseen something better for us. What is it? He asks. The answer is given in the gospel lesson of the first Sunday. You shall see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This means you, catechumens, you who believe in Christ, you who want to be baptized, who are preparing yourselves for Pascha, you shall see the inauguration of the new age, the fulfillment of all promises, the manifestation of the kingdom. 
but you shall see it only if you believe and repent, if you change your mind, if you have the desire, if you accept the effort. And this, of course, is applied not just to the catechumen, but to all of us who journey with the catechumens in the, over the coming 40 days to prepare ourselves for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the restoration of our baptismal identity in Christ. So with that, a few words of introduction from Father Alexander Schmemann. Let's turn to the gospel text, which is given to us here from John chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. John chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. It's the, the, uh, the text of the calling of the apostle Nathaniel. At that time, Jesus was about to leave for Galilee. And he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, Where do you know me from? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are King of Israel. Answering, Jesus, Jesus said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Greater things than these you shall see. And he said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Father Sebastian, this, is, this text is, is probably one of the more confusing or difficult texts to, to understand in the Gospel of John, but it certainly gives us some themes that we want to unpack here and some interesting, well, challenging discussion between Nathaniel and our Lord, why responses are given and so forth. So let's jump right in. First of all, what is the context here of this passage in the Gospel of John? All right, so this is very early in the Gospel of John, as you mentioned, it's chapter one. And so we're, this is the tail end of the first chapter of the Gospel. So this is the early, early, early stage of Jesus's ministry. We hear, about, we hear a reference to Jesus' baptism in earlier in the chapter. We don't get the actual details like we get in the Synoptic Gospels, but a reference to Jesus having been baptized and the Spirit descending. <clears throat> That's verse 34, 33, 34. And so now we're starting to see the disciples of John and those that are connected with them starting to slowly follow Jesus here at various stages. And that's where our story sits. Here it is at the, the tail end of that first part of the ministry where the disciples are starting to come to follow Jesus. And here Nathaniel, of course, is a big part of that story. Of course, you know, John, as he oftentimes does, writes on two levels. In fact, it seems like almost through the whole gospel, there's two ways in which John is writing it, and they're easily misunderstood. There's a, a natural level and a supernatural level. And this happens in conversation after conversation where 
those that Jesus engages understand him on a natural level, but of course he's speaking on a higher level. And oftentimes the words that are used have a double meaning and can be interpreted in those two ways. It's true here also of this invitation that Jesus offers to follow me and then later to come and see. There is that maybe that natural level in which Jesus is walking and he says, come and follow me. And we might read him on that, on that natural level. Just come, let's go, let's walk together. But there's a deeper following that Jesus is inviting these men into, a, a deeper come and see that he's inviting them into, and also inviting us, as I mentioned regarding Father Schmemann's comments, that this whole preparation for, uh, for Lent, this whole, or preparation for Pascha during Lent, is an invitation to the catechumens primarily, but also to each one of us to come to follow him and then to come and see in a new way. But then in the text here, we're challenged kind of on that natural level where there seems to be a disregard for something that is, it seems almost ridiculous. I don't know, the city of Nazareth, right? What's the big deal? But you say, well, first of all, what's the problem? With, what's going on with Nazareth there? Jesus identified as the son of Joseph of Nazareth, which is something of a, of a strange identification. Oftentimes we think of him as the son of Mary, but here he's identified as the son of Joseph of Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come from this place? So what's going on here with Nazareth? Give us that historical understanding at that time. What's going on in that city of Nazareth? Many of us have visited there on pilgrimage, but what, what did it look like in those days? As far as we know from, well, archaeologists tell us that it was probably right around 100 people in the town at that. It was a very small town, 100, 150 max. So a very small little town. It's in Galilee, southern, southwestern Galilee, a little bit of a distance from the, from the lake. And according to Bargell Pixner, an archaeologist and biblical scholar who's passed on now, uh, it was most likely a Davidic city. And, this, and it makes a lot of sense. You look at the story. Joseph is living there. Uh, Mary is there, both of Davidic descendancy. And it's a small town of somewhere around 100 to 150 people. Well, the odds are all of them are in some way related to David. So what, what, are, what are descendants of David doing in Nazareth? Why aren't they over in Bethlehem? Well, the story of David coming from Bethlehem is, is about 1,000 years earlier than this story here. So David came out of the little town of Bethlehem, which at that point was probably, you know, maybe 150, 100 people or something, maybe less. And, uh, and now 1,000 years later, 1,000 years later, you have, you have all these descendants of David since that time. There's no possible way they could all live in Bethlehem. And furthermore, many of them are probably returnees from the Babylon exile. And when they come back, where they have to go, they have to, they can't just move into a town where there's no houses. These are, this isn't like they've got, you know, putting in housing tracks or something for the <laughs> returnees. So they have to go and find another place to have a house. And so the returnees probably in many cases started new villages. Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It, and so it's, it's suggested that this is probably a, a town that begins sometime in the post-exilic period and probably with returnees from Babylon. 
and probably returnees from Babylon who are of Davidic descent who have to have a place to live. And so they start, they found this little church, there, this little house, village, sorry. And, but the name of the town has been also suggested as having a Davidic connection. So not only do we know David, Joseph, and Mary are from there, both of Davidic descent, but the town's name, Nazareth, Nazareth, Natsaret, the word in Hebrew means, it comes from the word Natser, that is branch, which should remind us of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a branch shall spring forth from the stump of Jesse. And we know we have a clear reference to that at the end of chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel. They went to do on Nazareth, that what the prophet said would be fulfilled, he would be called a Nazarene, not a a Nazarite from the Old Testament, but a, a Nazarios, that is a branch. So there's, there's a, a branch connection there for the Davidic descendants is probably related to why they came up with the, this name for this town. So what's, you know, Nathaniel responds in this way, this very negative way. I mean, says, could anything good come from this town? You know, what, why is he so down on Nazareth? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's a good question. Bargell Pixner suggests that there was maybe a little bit of a competition uh, with these little Davidic towns of which Davidic town was going to be the one from which the Messiah would come. And Nazareth, little you know, backwater Nazareth of 100 people, come on. These people, are they're, they're, they've lost their mind. The Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, not from one of the other towns or something. So it's probably related to something like that, but it's hard to say. I can imagine, you know, uh, the next president of the United States, someone's saying it's going to come from fill in the blank, some little town down the street from your, where you live. Ah, come on. The president's going to come from there. Interesting. So, okay. So Jesus then responds to him. Uh, Nathaniel comes to him. And the first thing he says, so Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him. He said to him, Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. You see, this is a passage, this whole passage is packed with stuff we normally just run right across. We just keep reading and we never stop. But there seems, there, there's so much here. There's so much meaning as you're pointing out Isaiah chapter 11 and so forth, historical background. And it, it seems that, that there's more here than first meets the eye. In some sense, like John writes on these two levels, this natural level supernatural level. So we have to slow down, I think, unpack this a little bit. What's the connection here between him being a true Israelite versus a, maybe a false Israelite and the, this issue of, of guile? Well, hopefully it reminds us, and we can, as we'll see in the next couple of lines, this is confirmed. It should remind us of the first Israelite, right? That Israel is a name that's given to the man Jacob, the patriarch Jacob in Genesis, who was in the book of Genesis, the one with guile, right? The one who, his very name, when he's, when he, Jacob means the one who grabs the heel, the tripper. So from the beginning of uh, the story of Jacob, right after we had the birth story of Jacob and Esau, he's hanging on to Esau's heel. Then at the next episode, Jacob, Jacob's his brother, he tricks him and, and gets his birthright for a bowl of lentils. And, uh, and then... In the next episode, we see him Jacobing Esau again and getting the blessing from the father. So he's stolen the two things that Esau had coming to him, the material and the spiritual inheritance. And Esau says, is he not rightly called Jacob? For he has Jacobed me 
these two times. In fact, his father, Isaac, says, your brother came with guile and took away your blessings. So there's clearly a reference here back to the Jacob story. This is, a, this is Nathaniel, Jesus says, is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. So this is, uh, Jesus is obviously making some sort of a, a uh, commentary on the difference of Nathaniel versus Jacob. Jacob had all these, you know, these ideas of ways to get ahead. You even see him doing Laban and the sheep and the whole thing. His whole life is like this. But Nathaniel seems to be a pretty open, outspoken, clear individual. He says what he thinks. He's not hiding anything. He's not trying to trick anybody. He, his initial response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Something someone else might have been kind of a little more polite or maybe embarrassed to say. He just comes out and says it. He says what he's thinking. And Jesus says, huh? There's no guy on this guy. He's, he's going to speak his mind and tell us what he thinks. So let's deal with that. You know, there's an interesting thing I've, I've often thought about. You and I didn't really prepare or consider this in our time together before we did this study together. But I wanted to ask you your thoughts on this same point. I've, I've oftentimes thought about that the story of Jacob and Israel in regards to Nathaniel, regarding that changeover from Jacob when he receives his new name from God, Israel. And there's a struggle or a, a wrestling that goes on with the Lord. And then he receives this new identity as one who is restored, in some sense, restored to his place in the family in Genesis chapter 32. You know, our participants might want to write this down, Genesis 27, and then the following story, and then Genesis 32, where this wrestling takes place. Um, it seems quite appropriate, maybe I'm taking it too far, but it seems quite appropriate during Lent that here these the catechumens all of us are in this time of struggle in which we are to receive our new identity as children of god as jacob then turned his back on his the the beguiling way in which he had lived and then is it receives this new identity and new name and becomes truly israel uh, a son of god Am I, am I, am I, the no, I, I, I agree with you completely. There's a really interesting connection there in the story there in Genesis um, is it 32. You said 32, when he's coming yeah. back. in Genesis 32, he, uh, when he's returning and he gets this name, it says in verse 30, I have seen God face to face and have lived. And when he then sees Esau, he then says to see, this is chapter 33, mm -hmm. verse, verse 10. He says, for truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. And of course, the narrative, the whole question is whether or not Jacob was going to live. Right. So there's, he's certainly, he's changed, right? He's left this place. He, he had to leave. He was put into exile because of what he had done, all of his guile. And now he's returned, like you said, a changed man. And now he beholds the face of God. He gets a new name. And now he sees in his brother, someone before that he thought someone he could get stuff from. Mm. Now he sees in his brother the reflection of the face of God. So he's certainly been restored to at least a, a closer to what Adam was originally created to be, right? Someone who was made in the image and likeness of God and saw his fellow man as the reflection of, of God, and therefore treated him with the same respect and love 
as he does with his own Heavenly Father. It's a great image or example for us during this Lenten season. And this is why going back to these Old Testament texts is so valuable for us. I encourage our participants to, to write that down. Isaiah chapter 11, earlier Genesis 27, 32, now Genesis 33. Take a look and to study those in preparation for this coming Sunday. But Father, let's get back to the text now where the thing just gets, the, the story gets even maybe a little more confusing for those reading at that surface level because Nathaniel says, where did you know me from? Right? Look, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel says, where do you know me from? And Jesus answered him and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And then this, this statement by Jesus that he saw him, maybe it was the day before or whatever it was, while Nathaniel is under the fig tree, seems to bring out for this something uh, on another level. So I think, first of all, on this whole thing, follow me, come and see. There's another level going on here in John's writing. And Nathaniel has certainly come and he has seen. <laughs> he has listened to the words of the Lord. And suddenly this comes out of him, a response which seems to be out of order with what Jesus has just said. Unless maybe there's something more about what Jesus is saying. So, so things about to proclaim him as the king of Israel, the Messiah, the long way to Messiah, which, by the way, is treason. So on a, on a natural historical level here, what Nathaniel is, just, is about to do is, is dangerous for his own life. But he says here, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Seems to be this turning moment. Is there something more here? Uh, in the text, more than meets the eye, if you will. <laughs> uh, sure, absolutely. There's well, okay. So the to be under the fig tree is uh, something that appears at least three times in the Old Testament. The first reference to it is in First Kings four twenty-five, and that seems to be at least one of the clear references here. In in First Kings four, we hear about Solomon's great authority and power as he's now become the king of the kingdom of God. David's now dead. Solomon's power is established and he begins to reign in all the, all this fullness. So this is kind of the beginning of the image of the Solomonic empire. He has the power of David, everything David had given him. And then in chapter three, he got the wisdom of God. And now in chapter four, we see Solomon in all of his glory. And it says that during the time of Solomon, this is in chapter, chapter 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel, the, so the, Judah, the south, Israel, the north, so the whole people, <laughs> uh -huh. dwelt in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, so from the north to the south. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So to be under your fig tree and under your vine, in the, in the Middle East, this is, you know, you had your house, which was typically a, basically a cube. And then outside the house, in front of the house, you had at least one of these, a fig tree. And the fig tree would provide food and shade. And they, they live, of course, in very dry areas. And so figs do well there. And the fig tree produces wonderful shade because it has huge leaves. And then, of course, the vine. Have a grapevine. Palestine was the, it's the Napa Valley of the Middle East. 
and they're great. Their exports were olive oil uh, and and wine, and so ever so they also vines grew very well there because it's very dry and grapes do well in a dry climate. Otherwise, they get the powdery mildew. So the uh, so uh, it was very common back then to make sure when you when you built a new house or you go and move into a new area, make sure you planted your vine, your fig tree. So to be under your vine and under your fig tree means to be at home. Basically, to be equivalent, the modern English expression would be, every man of Israel sat on his back deck sipping a mai tai, okay, or something like that. He's on he's it's he's on break. He's on vacation mm-hmm. because other in contrast to that during the time of David every man of Israel was out at war during the time of David. So they're out fighting battles and fighting battles and fighting battles. But now during the time of Solomon, that is peace, Shlomo, there's now peace and they have dominion over all the region. And so now there's peace. And so every man is no longer out at war. Every man is now at home and there's a time of peace. And so that's the, that's one of the references. There's other, there's other ones as well. Micah 4, 4, our audience wants to write those down, do a study on that. Micah 4.4. 4. In fact, the whole chapter of, four of Micah is all restoration imagery, messianic imagery. And then Ze- uh, Zechariah chapter 3 would be helpful too, especially verses 8, 9, and 10. Particularly 10 is where you get that reference of under the fig tree. But basically in a nutshell is this, is in the first Kings, you have the Solomonic era as this example of when men are no longer at war, but a time of peace, which means to be under your fig tree, under your vine, you're at home. And then Micah and Zechariah, the pre-exilic and, uh, and post-exilic prophets, both talk about the coming messianic era and the rest- restoration of the kingdom of God, like a time of a new Solomonic era, a new time in which there would be peace and every man would no longer be at war, but under his fig tree. So in some sense, we could read this as Jesus's declaration that the Messiah- messianic age has come and, and fulfillment of these these prophecies, this way of life, to read this together, the fig tree almost as a Hebrew idiom for the restoration of the kingdom, which would make a lot of sense with Nathaniel's response that he declaring this one in front of him, Jesus of Nazareth, to be truly the king of Israel. But I want to unpack that for a minute, his proclamation, his declaration that Jesus is indeed the king of Israel. And it, just ask you to do a little bit of a two-step with me here. First of all, the name Israel, I meant to ask you this earlier. What is the meaning of the name Israel? Jacob in the Old Testament receives this new name. What is, what is the definition? How do we understand that new name? Uh, so just like Jacob's name, Jacob, Akov is heel, and Yaakov is the one who, it's a verbal form, he grabs the heel. He's, he's the healer, the tripper. So Israel, Isra, he wrestles. And El is God, Elohim. So he wrestles with God, or you can translate all these names two different ways. Either God wrestles or he wrestles with God, either, either one. And back in the story, they're both doing the wrestling. Right. So this is new identity of, of this one who's returning to his relationship with the Lord. And he, he, then he says this, this term, King of Israel. And I think for many of our participants, especially those from a Middle Eastern background, Probably this whole text, and especially this point here, could be rather upsetting because of identity oftentimes in people's mind between the modern state of Israel and the Old Testament Israel. Um, and, and then he proclaims him as king, king of Israel. So what is it, how are we to understand this declaration? 
Well, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's really more of a, a very modern problem than anything. Today, since 1948, people hear Israel and they think of the modern state of Israel. In fact, we're now coming to an era uh, where the, you know, the majority of people were born since that time. You know, so we have a whole new generation now who has grown up with the state of Israel in existence. And this is going to get more complicated in another generation or two, where people are going to basically forget that 1948 occurred. And in most people's minds today, many people, they think of Israel, the one that is there, the monastery of Israel, as the Israel that goes all the way back into the New Testament. And that the Jews that we see when we encounter, we go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and we see these guys with funny hats walking down the Wailing Wall. Oh, this is just what they've been doing since that. Look, there's the people that Jesus was dealing with. No, these are people from Northern Europe, half of them not even genetically Jews. Many of them not even speak Hebrew. And, and this is a, it's a modern era that has, has taken a turn that has now caused a lot of confusion. I'm not saying there should not be the state of Israel. That's another issue. But the, um, but the term Israel now is associated with that. But when we go back into the first century, so we have to forget all this, forget the modern situation. We have to go back to the first century and say, how was the word Israel used in that time? We have the people of God who were in exile since the Babylonians had attacked, even before that a little bit, but the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Many of the Jews went off into exile. Some had stayed. Then eventually some returnees came from Babylon and we have this remnant people beginning to form and, and expecting, because all the prophets were saying it, that someday God would restore the kingdom, like a, a, new, a new Solomonic era, like we saw in Micah and Zechariah. The pre-exilic and, and post-exilic prophets all said this, that someday the exile would be over, not just geographically, but politically. That even if they returned, they, they understood their exile was still going on in a certain sense, because the things weren't like, it was, like they were in the time of Solomon. So the prophets keep talking about this time coming when the Messiah will return. The Messiah is the long-awaited king of Israel. In the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, or the king of the kingdom of God, was God. God was the king. The people asked for a human king. They got Saul. Then they got David. And so then we have, we enter into an era from the time of David forward where we have two kings, a divine king and an earthly king. And the earthly king eventually disappears off the historical scene. He, with the Babylonians, when they attack, they, they kill Zedekiah's sons, the last Messiah, anointed king on the throne in Jerusalem. And they poke his eyes out, and then they take him to Babylon. And so now we enter into a 500-year period where they, have, they don't have the human king anymore to rule over them. And even worse... The divine king's nowhere to be found. <clears throat> Ever since the Babylonians had destroyed the temple, they have not seen the glory cloud. The ark is missing. And so they're, they're waiting for 500 years of the restoration of the kingdom, which is two things, two events intimately related. The return of the glory cloud, the divine king to his palace, his temple, and the return of the human king, of the line of David, the Messiah, to his palace. And that, of course, is what we're seeing here in John's gospel, that all of these things, of course, are now coming to fruition. 
you know, I, I don't think we can s- stress enough this idea of expectation that was present there that would cause somebody like Nathaniel to, to make a statement like that, uh, a treasonous statement, number, number one, and a statement that indeed God had fixed this problem and the Messiah indeed has returned. It's is a watershed moment. And we can only understand how powerful this moment is in the context, as you're saying, of the expectation of the people of the Old Testament, the expectation of the people standing there uh, on the edge of the Jordan River, walking with Jesus, seeing what he was doing, and then and saying, now, finally, after 500 years or more, this moment has finally come. And it's that expectation the church is really drawing us into, as Father Shemaman was pointing out, of, of our own expectation and looking forward during this season of Lent in which we find ourselves very much like the people of the Old Testament, awaiting for this moment when the Messiah uh, will come and be present to us, when the King of our life will again be the King of our life, which, which explains much of what we read in the epistle, on this time of expectation and, uh, and the power of faith to attain to the thing which we expect. Um, Father, before uh, we, we conclude today, I think we don't need to get into the, the, the text of the epistle to the Hebrews because it is all about that point you just made and then placing ourselves in that moment of expectation like the people of the Old Testament awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And if we have that expectation, and if we have that desire, and we have that faith, then God will not fail us. That truly, we will uh, obtain the very thing that we hope for. Um, but it's here in that last verse that Jesus gives us a glimpse of that which we hope for. Um, not only will we live again in paradise, living under our fig tree, not only will the Messiah return, but the very heavens themselves will open, Jesus says, and we will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I'd like to just spend our last moments here together looking at this text, um, this phrase, Son of Man, and the theme of angels ascending and descending, and I'm sure, as usual, you have plenty of Old Testament texts to take us to. Well, this brings us back again into that Jacob theme. So I think most of our audience probably can hear in that the angels ascending and descending. This sounds like Jacob's ladder. This sounds like that story from Genesis, and surely that's, of course, what John is hoping we're going to hear and so I'd probably, it, well, probably it'd be very helpful to go back maybe and take a look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 28. Really? That's right. Genesis 28. Hold on, I got to turn my cell phone on. I forgot to do that. And I can find my text in my cell. <laughs> Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. So it says that this, he's fled from Esau mm-hmm. uh, and from his father's home because of what he did. And he's headed off to, he's headed east off to the place from which Abraham originally came. 
And it says along the way, along the way, it says verse, uh, let's see here, verse 12. He had laid down his head to go to sleep. This is chapter 28, verse 12. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land of which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. And your descendants shall be like dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad the west, the east, the north, the south. And by you all the descendants shall, of the earth shall bless themselves. So this is a reminder that the call of Abraham, the, the grandfather of Jacob, was for the purpose that all the nations would someday be blessed through his descendants. So he says, someday I'm going to do this through you. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so he names, the, he pours oil, it says verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning. He took the stone which had been uh, put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. So this is the Old Testament background to what Jesus is saying there. It, it, it seems as though, uh, fathers, you're reading that, and there's so much to, to hear about the descendants being, uh, being blessed and all the families of the earth being blessed. And now we're standing here in this, this place with Nathaniel and Jesus. There is in this text an anointing of the rock. And, of course, Jesus is, is, is going to be called in the New Testament the rock, the foundation stone of, of, of the church. He is the Messiah. He is the one upon whom the oil is poured, if you will. He is, in fact, we just saw him anointed, if you will, or the, the revelation of his messianic character being revealed in the Jordan River with John the Baptist as the, angel, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. He is, in some sense, the house of God in which, in which man and, and, and God are brought together uh, again this place of safety and peace, as you were pointing out earlier regarding being under your, the fig tree. There's just all these Old Testament images coming in, but I can't help but think that there must be a connection here. Uh, maybe you could comment on this about the angels at the resurrection. Um, and the reason I'm pointing that out is that, as Schmemann points out, that all of these Sundays are looking forward all of these Sundays are an, a, a, an attempt by the church to get the catechumen and all of us to raise up our eyes and to see off in the distance the light of the resurrection of Christ in which we will be transformed into his life. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit about that, about the angels, but also about this image of Jesus as fulfillment of these Old Testament images regarding this, this, this rock and the, the, the house of God and so forth. Sure. Yeah, like you said, it's very rich, and we, it would take us probably hours to unpack all of it. But basically, in a nutshell, it's looking forward. John's gospel is always looking forward to what's coming at the end, right? It's, it's now and not yet, right? It's, it, there's already 
in John's gospel here, the light of the resurrection is already shining here. And we'll, of course, see that at the end of the gospel in all its glory. But the first thing that should make us uh, note that, of course, as you mentioned, is the angels. Here we have angels at the beginning. Jesus says, you will see angels. And then at the very end is when, you know, the, the followers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and the others, they see visions of angels and things at the tomb. So what Jesus has just said is related it's in response to what Nathaniel had said. Nathaniel said, you are the son of God. You are, which was a title for the king in the Old Testament. You are the son of God. You are the, the king of Israel. But they're waiting for two kings. They're waiting for the return of two kings. And John's gospel is constantly doing this. You have the word of God, the eternal word of God, the logos, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And then now we hear about the earthly king, who is not simply of the line of David, not simply a descendant of David, not simply, not simply man, but rather he is actually the house of God. He is actually, as we'll find throughout the gospel, the temple where God dwells on earth. He is therefore the divine king. And that is going to be revealed in all of its glory, of course, when we see the empty tomb. And Thomas says at the end, my Lord and my God. You know, as we conclude here, it's important for us to remember that uh, all of this, as I keep coming back to, all of this in prep is in preparation for the catechumen's baptism and the restoration of our own understanding of our identity as sons of God, baptized into Christ. And now we can do a, f a complete rereading of this text. We're not going to do this here, but I think we can leave our participants with this. A complete rereading of this text, that this is not only for Jesus. What Nathaniel says is not only for Jesus. What Jesus says to Nathaniel is not only for Jesus. This is, this is also for us. That we are being granted uh, an invitation to not only come and see with our earthly eyes, but to come and see and then enter in with our spiritual life, that our whole life is going to be transformed. That we also might be counted worthy for the angels of God to ascend and descend upon us in Christ. Uh, and then we will also become, as Christians, anointed ones, a place for mankind to come and to rest and to encounter God, that we too will be counted worthy of being in Christ, the house of God, in which our humanity and his divinity are brought together once again. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.